0: We'll look now at 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, if you'll turn your Bibles there. And, and if you uh, like to flip pages, that's fine. If you just want to have a sticky note next where you can jot down verses and refer later as I, as I go to parallel verses, do whatever works best for you. I'm the type, i I'd do best just listening, staying focused and listening. But last week during our instruction to the pastoral epistles introduction, uh, we discussed... You know, how essential it is for the church to carry on from generation to generation. And, and by Christ's decree, his body keeps on growing, right? And beginning in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we observe there are two generations represented here. It says that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We first see the writer. That's Paul. He is a member of a very select group. He was an apostle, which in Greek means he was a sent one. What makes Paul noteworthy is not that he was a sent one. It's by whom he was sent. There are lots of sent ones. Paul was sent by Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells us, in in order to be sent by Jesus Christ, you must personally have seen the risen Christ. For most apostles, this happened immediately following the resurrection. You'll see in Acts chapter 1 that he appeared to many of them, all of them. Uh, We do see also Judas Iscariot hanging himself. In Acts chapter 1, Peter declared because of that, It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all of this time, meaning during the ministry, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that Jesus was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. So we see a true apostle must be an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. This is entirely consistent with what we hear from Paul when defending his apostleship against false teachers in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, saying, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? The answer is a resounding yes. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was traveling to Damascus. At that time, he was a notorious persecutor of the church, Saul. He was a Pharisee. And traveling uh, to Damascus, nonetheless, to arrest Christians. And it happened that light flashed from heaven, and falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And the voice responded, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And though Paul wasn't one of the original twelve, nonetheless, Jesus visibly appeared to Paul numerous times throughout Acts. The record of Acts. Exactly as the risen Christ had appeared numerous times to the other apostles. And Paul saw Jesus face to face. This is an essential characteristic of, Of every apostle, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul records, Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, because he came later on the road to Damascus, he appeared to me also, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles. So to be a sent one of Jesus, you must have visibly seen the resurrected Christ and personally be sent by him. Because there were so many false teachers in the early church, you know it would have been really easy for people to say, "Oh yeah, 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 I saw Jesus, I saw him resurrected." So Scripture adds one other small prerequisite to being, becoming acknowledged as an apostle. This is in second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says, "The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and." Miracles. To differentiate the true from the false, God enabled true apostles to perform signs and miracles. Even raise the dead, as Paul did to young Eutychus as he fell from the window in Acts chapter 20, if you remember. Verifiable miracles. True apostles were verifiable. This is similar to true prophets of the Old Testament who were verified by their ability to predict what? Future events. Deuteronomy 18. But the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews reminds us even of prophets in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So prophets spoke long ago, Hebrews tells us. They are a thing of the ancient past, we read in Acts chapter 3. Well, apostles were commissioned directly by Christ and accompanied by verifiable miracles at the founding of the church, at the beginning of the church. Ephesians two twenty reminds us uh, that the church is established upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The foundation is is unchangeable. It's unchangeably set in stone, and established in Scripture as Scripture was written by the prophets and those of the apostolic era who lived in a past historical time. Here's the primary takeaway I want you to observe with this. The office of apostle and prophet are now closed. They're closed. There are no more of them because none today meet the criteria laid out in Scripture. So number one, when you see lists of offices such as that in Ephesians 4.1 I'll read to you. God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. When you see that, we know for a fact, Scripture tells us, God didn't intend every part of everything, every list that we see, every part of every list, God did not intend to be permanently abiding. Do You see that? We know portions of these lists have expired. This is especially important in 1 Corinthians 12. 12. God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. We know in Romans 12 we find another list, uh, a different list of giftedness from the Holy Spirit. So we have these lists, but simply because an office or even a spiritual gift, appears on a list, doesn't by itself, unless it's accompanied by the proper biblical evidence, doesn't by itself indicate that it's functioning in the church today. Some were for the past. They had purposes of the past. Number two, if you encounter anyone who claims to be an apostle or a prophet and can neither... At least supply you with next week's lotto numbers? Or throw down a miracle in front of you? Then run. They're a false teacher. They're not an apostle or a prophet. Those are from ages past. Enough on that. Paul was an apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ. And authorized, it says, according to the commandment of God. It was by God. It wasn't an act of man. It was an act of God. Well then, who was Timothy, we might ask? Timothy was a young man from a town in Lystra, that's in modern day Turkey, whom Paul, it appears, led to Christ, and that's why Paul calls him my true child in the faith. Paul said the same of Titus. Becoming obedient to the Great Commission, we should all have spiritual children who we have led to faith. And Acts and the epistles record that Timothy traveled along with Paul and Luke and Silas. Throughout much of Paul's ministry, he was with them. And Timothy, Timothy was a, a faithful disciple of Paul and a faithful bondservant of God. He had worked with Paul many years. And in verse 3 then, Paul writes to him, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus... So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Saying, rather than furthering the administration of God, that is the church. So here's a historical setting, and I'm going to put a map up here. Paul's been released from his first imprisonment now as he's writing this letter. And he destri- decides to travel back to visit some of the churches after he's been released from prison. Let's take a moment here. Are we all right with the map? He's bringing it up. It's coming. So Paul's released from prison. Look at, look at the historical background here. And he's, he's thinking now, I'm going to go back to these churches that I've helped found, encourage them in the faith. He wants to travel back and see how things are going. And, and Paul becomes especially concerned about Ephesus. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 20, uh, he told the elders there that he knew after his departure that savage wolves were going to come in, not sparing the flock. Remember that? So he's traveling back. We can see here there's a map of, of where he likely traveled. Got this off a commentary by Swindoll. And, and he started in Rome. That's when he's released from prison. Probably stopped at the island of Crete. Then went up to Miletus and you see uh, Ephesus there. onto Troas. And then over into Macedonia. Probably down to Corinth. So for, for the church... Ephesus was a very challenging environment. I'm going to leave this up there for a moment so you can follow along. Can't see it? This is kind of important. Got it? So, for the church, Ephesus was a challenging environment. Um, It was a very prosperous Mediterranean port city. It was on the Aegean Sea. And Ephesus, it had a large athletic stadium. It had a a theater that could seat over 25,000 people. The surrounding hills supplied water. It had a very advanced aqueduct system that fed sawmills. Even sawmills that they were able to cut marble with. And and the, the marble was used to line the city streets. The marble was used to build the foundations of the buildings in the city. The marble was even polished and used as the public restrooms. That's what was at Ephesus. And and it was an extremely pagan city. There were lots of monuments erected around the city to as many as fifty gods and goddesses, but none were greater than the temple of Artemis you remember, uh, being a, the goddess of fertility, Artemis, also known as Diana, she was a real huge boost to their economy there. This gleaming city of marble and this goddess of fertility. And, and tourists came from all over the Roman Empire for these athletic events and performances and many to worship the fertility goddess Diana. So a huge portion of... Uh, of their economy, a significant portion anyhow, was attributed to this tourism, this thriving silversmith industry that, that, that sold shrines of Diana, that people could take home with them as articles of worship. And the following fact uh, should really cause all of us to marvel and to be motivated. The influence that Paul had at founding this church in, Influ- in Ephesus. An Ephesian silversmith, silversmith named Demetrius, he vehemently opposed Paul in any founding of any church in Ephesus. Why? Let's hear from Demetrius himself. He says in Acts 19, verse 25 Demetrius gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Then he says this, Not only is there danger that this trade of ours had fallen into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be regarded as worthless. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. The Prosperity, the tourism was threatened. And you wonder why uh, Christians are so often resented from segments of our society that thrive on paganism and idolatry. It's because we threaten their prosperity. The gospel threatens their prosperity. So Ephesus... It was hostile from the beginning. It was a hostile location. And now years later, Paul and Timothy, they circle back on to Ephesus. The church is still under assault at this time. False teachers had crept in. We'll find later in this chapter that it was necessary for Paul to step in and expel from the church Hymenaeus and Alexander. Chapter 1. And the false teaching of Hymenaeus, Paul indicates in 2 Timothy that spread like gangrene. It was an infection eating away at the body, at the flesh of Christ. And everyone in Paul's day would have recognized that there's only one way to get rid of gangrene. You had to cut it out from, remove it from the body. And either the elders that were at Ephesus at this time that he had left back in Acts 20, either they're unable or unwilling to deal with these offenders. So Paul steps in and removes them. But after a period of time now, Ephesus uh, in Ephesus, Paul says, uh, I've got to go on. I've got to move on. There are other churches out there. And he resumes his journey to Macedonia, across the Aegean Sea there. And Thessalonica is over there. Other cities, he was going to strengthen their churches... And at the time of this letter, we believe Paul is writing from Corinth. He's probably made it that far. And though Paul must, must proceed, his reminder to Timothy in verse 3 is to remain on. You remain on. This is probably supposed to be a quick tour for Paul. To go around these cities and check in on them. Biblical evidence tells us that he left his cloak and his books and his parchments in Troas right there north of Ephesus before going on into Macedonia so he w- left his winter clothes so he wouldn't have to carry along with him to go over and travel quickly to the other cities but at some point he didn't make it back he was arrested and, and in writing from prison in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12 Paul warns you know the end is near Time is running out. He probably at this time had months left to live at the most. And, and he wants to see Timothy one more time. And he writes saying, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, come with you, when you come bring the cloak which I left with at you know, Troas with Carpus, a man named Carpus. Bring that cloak with and the books and especially the parchments Paul says to Timothy, in verse 21, make every effort to come before winter. So Paul becomes imprisoned. Ephesus remains a battleground. So Paul calls for Timothy, uh, who was acting as an elder. He says, Come to me, but not without first sending faithful Tychicus to replace him. First, we're going to have a replacement of Timothy before he leaves. And we discovered last fall as we went through 1 John that even later on, John comes in and sets up as an elder in Ephesus. We have a very difficult city here. Apostle John even has to come in and shore it up. Take the map down. Thank you. So what is the problem? What is the problem? Why... The need for such heavy reinforcements all the time. What is such a threat to the local church in Ephesus? The threat was that men were teaching strange doctrines. Strange doctrine. That's the threat. And it spread like gangrene. And verse 4 says uh, they include things like genealogies and fables. The teachers were just making stuff up. It also tells us that myths... These myths just added to speculation. They did not further the administration of God, which is by faith. They didn't further the church. Myths hindered the church. They caused speculation. One of these myths we learn in 2 Timothy 2.18 was that the final resurrection had already taken place. That report was spread by Hymenaeus. That the final resurrection, it's already taken place. Now, it says in 2 Timothy 2.18 that this had upset the faith of some. Some Christians were lamenting, you know, I might have missed it. I might have missed out. And Titus is reminded by Paul in in Titus chapter 1 that there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. False doctrine and strange teaching upsets people. And Scripture says it must be silenced. Especially when you've got got men like Hymenaeus that are telling people you might have missed out on the resurrection. Now imagine yourself in the early church. You don't have a completed Bible yet. You don't have revelation because it's not written yet. You don't have a lot of the eschatology and the order of things yet in your hands. What you have is a body of believers that believe they are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you have. A lot of them had different epi- uh, epistles, but a lot of the eschatology, the end time stuff hadn't been written out clearly yet. And and you don't have a phone. You can't call over to neighboring cities. There's no internet or the evening news for you to look at and see if something had really happened a hundred miles away. So there's this mystery. You're kind of around your own little congregation, which at that time probably were still small. You've got a few believers in this town, a few believers in another town. And you don't know exactly what's going on over there. And people are coming in and, and, and teaching myths. You know what? I think the resurrection already happened. You missed it. What's Paul's advice to Timothy, verse 19, Paul says, Tell the people, don't worry, the Lord knows who are His. The Lord knows who are His. The Lord knows His sheep. And the end isn't coming until He gathers together every single one of them. You haven't missed anything. You know, Eschatology has been a very big problem for the early church. It's not isolated at all. Uh, such as in Thessalonica. When, when, who was told that, that the Lord had already come. Basically is what they thought they missed out on. And it's a church that gave uh, Paul the opportunity to teach about the rapture. Some people might have thought they missed such a rapture. Been left behind. And Paul reassured them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in this manner. Be not quickly shaken from your composure. Do not be disturbed by a false spirit. Again, there's false teaching. And let no one deceive you as to the effect of the timing of the day of the Lord. Eschatology again. People were being upset. Why don't be upset? Because it hasn't yet come. It wasn't an isolated problem. Many Christians had been convinced by rumors that had been spread by false teachers that they missed out on the Lord's return. Maybe none of us were really saved. I heard the church up in Fort Pierce that half of those people are gone. Would that upset you? Don't want to be left behind. I've seen the movie. This is upsetting a whole lot of folks because they knew that Christ was their only hope. That's the only hope. If you miss out on that, you've got nothing. And now, Peter also confronts problems with eschatology. Again, this isn't isolated. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's ungodly people who are doubting that there would even be a judgment. They're speculating about the timing of the day of the Lord. And right in that context, Peter prepares Christians... To anticipate, there are going to be skeptics. There are going to be people who doubt. And he and he's writing uh, in chapter three that in the last days, you know, ungodly people will be mocking. That's what Peter says. They'll be following their lusts. They'll be flaunting their lusts. And they will be saying, "Where is his coming?" That's what they're saying. Where is his coming? Hear that today. You witness to people, huh, where's this coming? And do you remember what Peter uses as an illustration? Peter uses the flood. Peter especially liked using Noah in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And and today is exactly like Noah. People mocked the delay of judgment with Noah for 120 years as God was building that ark. People were mocking outside. The ungodly people... And God is building this ark, using Noah as a servant to safely carry away his people. And and writing to Christians, Peter identifies them as called by God, the chosen. This is who Peter is writing to, those who are called by God and chosen. Peter essentially tells them, don't be distracted by these myths and this empty chatter of godless people. Keep on building the ark. Back in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter used Noah as an example of faith. And just as the ancient Noah, who was saved by, from judgment through the wooden ark, Christians are today waving people into the ark. And the ark is Christ. The salvation is in Christ, in His body in the church. And Peter says, just keep on building it. Don't worry about the end time stuff. None of Christ, he, he says to them, none of God, Christ's beloved are going to be left behind. Don't worry about that. No one's going to be left behind. When, when the rapture does occur, nobody's going to be left behind. None of God's chosen. And, and, and when the, ark, the door of the ark is closed, all that's going to be left is ungodly people. That's all that was left. And Peter says, don't worry about the timing of the day of the Lord. Just build. Judgment is coming on the ungodly, but timing is irrelevant. And Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, And let not this fact escape your notice, beloved. Notice again, he's speaking to Christians. That the day of the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards You. Again, who are you? God's people, His sheep. God is patient towards you, His chosen. Not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And in the very next verse, but the day of the Lord will come. But the day of the Lord will come. But God is patient right now towards us. He has a timing that He has decreed. He is waiting to gather His sheep together in the ark. In the meantime, we are waving the sheep in. That's what we do. The door of salvation is not going to close until all of God's beloved sheep have entered the ark. None of them are going to perish. That, that's the timing of the day of the Lord. Today, like Noah, we are ark builders. We ignore the mockers. We ignore those who are speculating on things spreading myths, spreading fables, trying to delay us from building the ark. Judgment's coming. But all that speculation does not further the administration of God, which is through faith. So don't worry about it. Instead, what we worry about is in verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love, agape, God's love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So as God's Servant, bond-servant, we become a conduit for lo- of love to God, for God to people. We're a conduit where the love of God flows through us. And because God has provided us the faith as a gift, just as God gave Noah faith as a gift, because God was, was giving one of his beloved the gift of faith, Noah didn't just muster up the faith to build the ark. Faith is what, Ephesians tells us, it is a gift of God. Even your faith isn't of you. It's something that God gives to you as a gift. And the loving thing to do for us is to tell people to get in the ark. So the love of God is flowing through us from a sincere heart, a sincere faith. We love people and guide them towards salvation. Love in God's terms does not mean you just tolerate every empty sin out there. We all struggle with sin. But love in the Bible is not defined as just putting up with every type of sin everywhere. Just flaunting it. So, uh, we wave the sheep into the ark. None of them are going to perish. And, and God's love is working through us. We're witnessing to people. We're preaching to people. We're holding signs on the street corner in Gatlin and out in Floresta. And we're waving people in. We're giving out tracts. And there's going to be mockers that are going to tell us, hey, that judgment... Where's that coming? I haven't seen it. The day of the Lord is coming, Peter writes. So we find one of the chief reasons that elders are given to the church, leaders are given to the church, and and we discover in, in this first opening statement to Timothy, one of the main reasons is to keep focused, keep all of us focused on kingdom building, and to stifle distractions. Stifle distractions. That's currently Timothy's role. Verse 3 says, Timothy, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And the term here, instruct, it's a very authoritative word. The ESV uses the term charge. The NIV, I think, uses the term command. You command them. Chuck Swindoll says, and I quote, Command or order better captures the authoritative nuance of the Greek verb. Paul expected the pastor to use his authority to forbid two specific distractions from the gospel. Theological innovation and appealing to myths and genealogies for authority, So the first requirement of a pastor revealed in our pastoral epistles must be willing and vigilant to forbid strange doctrines. They upset people. And at the same time, he must be able to teach sound doctrine from a sincere faith. And Paul writes Titus, giving the same identical requirement for pastors in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, he says, The elder must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. Telling Titus the same thing. And in verse 6, we find that there's another serious problem that needs immediate attention. Instead of focusing on building the ark... And the responsibility of loving from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It says that some men, straying from these, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law. Even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Yet they're teaching the law. You know, we don't have a lot of problem with that in this church. We we don't see a lot of legalistic Judaizers come into this church uh, because Scripture's taught us that nobody acts as our judge in regard to uh, dietary laws or to a feath, feast or to a Sabbath day or a new moon or a festival because we realize these things according to Colossians chapter two they were things that were a mere shadow of what is to come a shadow of the substance that belongs to Christ. They were a precursor. They were a reflection of what was going to be experienced in Christ. So we quickly dismiss it when people say, you know what, you need to start following those dietary laws, those Judaistic dietary laws. Or you need to start celebrating the feasts. Even adhering to a particular Sabbath day. No. Christians Christians understand that Christ is our Sabbath rest and we rest from the law. It was a yoke that neither Peter or the apostles or even their forefathers could bear. Why would we want to take it on our shoulders? Yet all over the place, you got people trying to hoist it on other people's shoulders. An increasing segment of our society is being drawn into this. You'll see a lot of messianic Christians, they call themselves, or Sabbatarians, and they're deceived in the false teaching that once you become a Christian... Now it is your goal to become a Jew. Essentially, you're supposed to act Jewish. Where have we heard this before? In Paul's writing in Scripture, to the Galatians, to the Colossians. This is the same thing hashed over and over again. And these Judaizers preach law-keeping. And to differing degrees today... um, Some of them claim you can't be a genuine Christian without having a sincere desire to return to the law. It's legalism. And just as men in verse 6, they assert all kinds of bizarre doctrines today, they make no sense. I've watched some of them on YouTube. They don't even understand what they're teaching and they don't teach grace. Yet they proclaim it with confidence. Confidently. This is how it's going to be. Yet it doesn't come from Scripture. Scripture. And people believe them. And Jewish legalism is exactly what Peter preached against in our, in our uh, Scripture reading earlier from chapter 15 in Acts. And it can't be reconciled to Scripture. We are not here to keep the Mosaic Law. That's not what the law was designed for. Actually, it will be next week when we will discuss what the law is for. Scripture is going to tell us. But it was never provided as a stepladder to work yourself up to God. and our church doesn't really suffer from jewish legalism we do suffer from legalism every church suffer, suffers from legalism you and i suffer from legalism and, and legalism is when you and i we formulate codes of conduct that are not explicitly given in the bible can't even reasonably be defended in the bible and they're instead just our personal preferences but these preferences make us feel very good about ourselves. We make up a law. And, and, and there's nothing we, pre, we proud people like better than to force others to conform exactly to us, right? We want everybody to look like us. And, and that's legalism. And usually it's in regard to the type of music you listen to or, or the type of worship you have or worse yet, those evil motion picture shows. And the legalist says, I want you to look like and behave just like me. Because I think I'm what Christ would want you to look like. That was the mindset with the people that Timothy was dealing with. Except they were trying to point people to the law. We're trying to point people to our own laws. And and because I I think I'm Christ what is what you should look like, Christ is what you'd want Excuse me, Christ is what? uh, Messed up here, lost in place. Um, Because I think that I'm exactly what Christ would want you to look like, I think you should wear my hair. I think you should uh, wear my dress. And I've got this stack of pilgrim dresses from my closet that are all sized up for all the people that I want to make my disciples. And I want you to dress like me. I want you to do my hair just like me. And I'm going to replicate me in you. That's what the legalist says. At its heart, it's pride. And it indoctrinates personal preferences. Just a couple examples, and I'm going to wrap up. One of our elders at my previous church went on a mission trip to Russia. And uh, he witnessed to and experienced a woman being saved. And and in an attempt to find her a church, he went to what, if I I remember, they called it a Baptist church, but I think it looked much more like an Eastern Orthodox or Russian Orthodox church, actually, because that's such a huge influence there. And he took her to the door and the pastor said, she can't come in here. My friend Warren said, why? And the pastor turned to her and said, she's wearing makeup. She's of the world. She can't come in here. Love what my friend Warren said to her. You can't do that. You're not her Holy Spirit. We are usurping the Holy Spirit when we enforce our preferences to make people look more like us. Rather than the Holy Spirit using Scripture to make a person look more like Christ. Another one years ago, you'll like this. This comes in all forms. We're all guilty. Ah, I'm guilty too. Jerry, I want you to look just like me. We just, got, we just got to observe it. We just got to observe it so we know. And, and years ago, when Rita and I had first gotten saved, and uh, we were really excited about serving Christ, we wanted to jump in both feet. And, and we found a small little church where one of the matriarchs there, just out of the blue, she founded her place to inform all the women that when it comes to swimwear, a one piece is okay, but a two piece is sin. I wasn't even that far along in the Lord, but I knew that was baloney. And, and first, I was pretty certain that the Bible itself didn't speak about swimwear. I, I could gather this myself as a new Christian. And secondly, I had been of the world for over three decades at that time, and I knew from experience that there is some two-piece swimwear that is relatively conservative. And there's other one-piece swimwear that is outright sin. So it doesn't even pass the sniff test. So, her legalism didn't, didn't pass with us, and we said, no thank you. Rita handed her back her theoretical pilgrim dress. said, so put it right back. I don't know what it was. No one had ever seen anyone wear a swimsuit around there. So I don't know why she found it her role to make sure she told people that. And the result, we went and found a Bible-believing Christian church that was a little less judgmental, and we invested our time, our talent, and our treasure into the work that was going on there. Here's the question for us all to consider, myself included. Is God more offended with makeup in Russia than He is here? No. And is God more concerned with a one-piece swimwear here than He is of a converted Christian in the jungle somewhere that wears a bikini every day all the time? Is God that concerned? No. Modesty is a cultural relative. And, and we're going to talk about how we achieve modesty and appropriate dress in chapter two. We'll go there, and, and we'll explain why Christians should dress to the modest side of the cultural norm. Norm being the language there, normal. But we dress to the modest side of the cultural norm. But no, no guest comes who comes through the door, especially if they're a new believer or possibly being interested in Christ and hearing about Christ, none of them ought to be forced to dress like a pilgrim. They instinctively know when we're being legalistic. And they'll go elsewhere. Did that lady that that was driving us away from that small church with her personal preferences, did that permit her the opportunity to speak into Rita's life? And to guide her? Speak God's word to her? Did she have that chance to talk to her about what the Word said? Rita really wasn't on immodest. This other woman was just going to make sure that nobody ever went there. Most of us know what modest is. No. The woman never got to be a part of Rita's life, never got to make a disciple. And I anticipate that there's about the same number of people over there today as there was then, about 30, that many years ago. No one goes in. Everybody turns around and goes back out. And was she given the opportunity to be a credible influence to speak into the lives of the next generation instead of driving the next generation away. Legalism is why so many churches in America are turning gray and dying. I'm glad we have the mix of races, of ages, of grandparents and families and children as we do here. It is a blessing that a lot of congregations do not experience. But it is the Holy Spirit's sovereign ministry to save. On non-sin issues, which are just preferences, it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to sanctify, as the word is preached. When there's an obvious sin that might cause harm to an individual, or cause harm to the church itself, it might be leaven. We'll find later on in Timothy that uh, it's the responsibility of the elders to address, address it. We'll address it. And we'll talk more about how that looks later in First Timothy. In the meantime, next week, we're going to look at the purpose of the law. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you and look at your word, Lord, and how it reveals you to us, Lord, and and how it reveals man to himself, Lord, uh, with your Spirit. Lord, that uh, we're, we're appealing to you. We are um, profitable to you, Lord, only through Christ. Lord, and left to ourselves, we become self-righteous. These legalistic people that Timothy met in that day, Lord, uh, not so much different than ourselves, just a different list. And Lord, uh, as we look forward to this uh, book and continuing through the pastoral epistles and learning about you, Lord God, and, and the reason you left these letters, we pray that we'll be more like Christ, that we will be more humble, that we will be modest. Lord, that we will be like you, who gave yourself as a sacrifice, gave yourself, Lord, to... To bear our sins on a cross, Lord, and went to your death for us, Lord. Help us to be like that. Help us to be sacrificial like you, as, as uh, the girl sang earlier, Lord. Help us to be loving when our nature, our sin nature that remains, Lord, causes us to be coarse. Lord, help us be wise. Wise in you, wise about the times. As, as we hear distractions, from the ungodly Lord that are distracting people away from the ark and say, don't go in there. Help us to be wise, Lord, to focus on you and proclaiming your word, telling others about you, Lord, and your salvation, and waving them in. Waving them in, Lord God, so that they too might receive your gift. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the blessings you give us. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you are a New or relatively new visitor, I'd like to meet you. I'm going to stand right here at the front. If you need to hear more about Christ, need to be saved from your sins, I'll be right here.